three, two, one, zero. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Welcome to Unearthed, out-of-this-world conversations about space mining with the people going after it. We're your hosts Brandon and Jared of Peter Lucas Project Management. Here on Unearthed, we've chatted with entrepreneurs chasing the business of space mining, scientists working to unlock the secrets of how to extract materials from off-Earth bodies, and people looking to advocate for governments and corporations to invest in this future economy. However, we are human beings, and a part of any undertaking of this magnitude must also appreciate culture. Much of the way space is perceived has been formed in Western worldviews, think Star Trek or Star Wars, but there are other cultures that have important contributions to make to this conversation, cultures from which we can learn about finding balance and sustainability with the Earth while allowing the human race to prosper, which is one of the goals of space mining. Today's guest, Dr. Annette Lee, is an astrophysicist, educator, artist, and founder of Native Skywatchers, a programming initiative created to revitalize indigenous Earth and star knowledge to explore and share the sustainable engineering and living traditions practiced by North American Indigenous peoples. Harmony with the above and below, the sky and the earth. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us, Dr. Lee. Hello, Mitakuyayas, and to all my relations. This is Annette Lee. I'm happy to be here to share a voice from the Indigenous community and my personal perspective. I just want to say that uh, I am mixed race Lakota. My family name is Wambli Luta, and my communities are Ojibwe and Dakota Lakota. I want to say that I'm here in the land of Minnesota Makoche, which is Minnesota, where the water reflects the sky. I want to say that to all my relations, I hope that we can have this conversation in a good way, with a good heart and a clear mind not just for ourselves, our families, but our communities, and all the things that are happening right now in the world, but also for the seven generations that come when we're gone, those generations that come after us. We try to make it better for them. Mitakuyasin. Thanks for having me. And Jared and I would like to acknowledge that we are here on Treaty 6 territory in the traditional homeland of the Métis. Obviously, you're passionate about space. Your work has been based in it. Most of your art features the sky. So to start us off, I'd like to know where that passion came from. Oh, yes. And you reminded me also to acknowledge this is the original land of the Dakota people. And later the Ojibwe also lived here too. So this is the indigenous people of this land. So your question again, where did my motivation for astronomy and space come from? So I have to say for as long as I can remember, and even probably back to the days in the womb, which would be before time zero, right? (laughs) I have always loved the stars and the stars felt a really close connection to the stars. When I was very young too, I often had spirit dreams with the stars. So it really goes way back. It's not something that I shows like in college when I was looking through the catalog and deciding what to do with my life but I can say for sure that I came into this world I was born into this world with this motivation and this connection to the stars. Would you be able to give us a bit of an overview of the relationship between North American indigenous culture and the cosmos? 
Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of a big question, but I'll be happy to like get, give you some of the basics and feel free to jump into. So the relationship with the stars. So I guess the first thing just to say is that from the indigenous perspective, like there's going to be variation, but there are some common themes, a common ground. And so the first thing is this idea that we come from the stars. We chunk peyote, human flesh, the, the words. In many of the languages, the words mean the word for star translates human flesh. I mean, that right there is so profound. In Diné, in Inanu, and these are the colleagues and elders that I work with, there's multiple examples throughout the globe even of indigenous people having this same teaching that we come from the stars and as you know even in astronomy especially in astronomy we know that our atoms our physical bodies right came originally from the cosmos so either in the the big bang the simpler elements in stellar life fusion then up to carbon and then in supernova all the hundred elements, right? So we know with the science lens that all our physical atoms, what we think of as very real and who we are, that's an identifying thing, right? A solid thing made up mostly of empty space. And we know those atoms came from the stars. There's no other explanation, right? So, you know, this is, we come from the guts of a, a massive dying star, Carl Sagan. Um, but in indigenous way of thinking, we say, we take it one more stop because we recognize our human lifetime is more than physical. And we say four parts, the mind, the body, which overlaps with the Western worldview and Western science, but also the heart and the spirit. So we have all four parts. And so in our viewpoint, we know that not just our physical atoms came from the stars, but our, our spirits came from the stars. And that's the key thing because it's the four parts, but the spirit leads. And why does the spirit lead? The spirit leads because the spirit was existing before this human journey and the spirit that comes from the stars, that spirit part will go on after. So I think one of the main things in indigenous astronomy to point out is this idea that we have spirits and that it's okay to acknowledge the, the heart and spirit. We don't have to divide that and separate that out. We can think of the whole of our humanity. We can recognize that we come from the stars and then so we have that relationship. So the teaching is like all things, all living things have spirit. And that way we're all connected. So a plant, an animal, the winged ones, the, the four-legged, I mean, even a blade of grass. I mean, it sounds kind of ridiculous, but we also acknowledge the stories that the rocks tell, right? Anyways, the idea is that all these things around us Living things have a spirit, and in that sense, we're all connected, all of my relations, mitakuye oyasin. I think those are some of the big ideas that we come from the stars and that we are all related. And so we think of the stars in addition to being these incredibly 
interesting scientific objects, you know, these mostly spherical objects of plasma, we also recognize that the stars are our oldest living relatives. And there's a real relationship there. Now, as I understand it, indigenous culture, traditions, history, and knowledge is passed through the generations through storytelling, the spoken word. Are there any particular stories or references that can best describe that connection between North American indigenous culture and the cosmos? Yeah, although it's, it's really old, the teachings and the knowledge, we all can agree that colonization happened, you know, 500 years ago. And colonization came with the idea that there was one perspective, the Western European perspective. And so in that, when colonization manifests destiny, we are still living in a time of that legacy. And so even our idea of science has come from that one cultural perspective. And think about that. I like to point out that the word for, for example, the word for physics comes from the Latin roots of the word philosophy of nature. So would we honestly say that only one culture in the history of all humanity has a relationship to nature worth listening to? As much as I personally do love science, I think that it's time to reset and re-examine look at the look at all the reset that we're going through right now COVID-19 pandemic global health and economic crisis right we're resetting we're looking at how to do things better how to do things differently or not (laughs) and so um, I think that this has been happening in science and this idea that science is embedded with culture and let's just acknowledge that because Culture is more than your ethnicity or race. That's like a very superficial understanding. You know, it's different ethnic foods or holidays or Cinco de Maya or whatever, right? That is very part is part of it, but it's a very superficial uh, way to think of culture. Culture is like the philosophical, almost unconscious underpinnings of what we believe without even putting our finger on saying we believe it. It's a part of our everyday lived human experience in this here and now. So everybody's got it, multiple layers. And so I think that's our first step really to say that culture is absolutely a part of science. We can't deny it. We have to just acknowledge it. And then once we make that step, because we are humans and we are doing science, Okay, so once we make that step, we can say that, well, the, the, this objective science that we think of, that we've been, kind of has been sold to us, is actually, if you really look carefully, it comes from one culture, and that's Western European. So that's fine. That's all good. And I believe in Western science, too. I'm not really, I'm not against it, because I am a scientist. And, you know, and also, it's this certain strategy of divide and conquer, this narrowing, this hyper-focused, laser-focused narrowing in order to divide and conquer and to get the solutions to get where we're going. It actually works. It's a strategy that works. I mean, I started out in mathematics. You know, that's we did that all the time. But the problem is, and what I'm really saying and, and trying to advocate and communicate is that we just have to acknowledge that's just one perspective, one cultural viewpoint. 
and I use the analogy of the electromagnetic spectrum. So all of us in science, we know that it would be so foolish to say, because our eyes can only detect between 400 and 700 nanometers, that's the only thing that exists. That's the only thing that's real. That's the only piece of information we care about, right? Think of all the things that we would, the discoveries, the insights, the information, the layers, all missing if we don't recognize you know, we can't even use our cell phones and our microwaves. Come on. <laughs> right. So the point is, is that let's think of uh, science as that spectrum. And once we have the acknowledgement that there is culture embedded in science because we are human beings and we have been using just the one wavelength, the one type of the one flavor of light, the one flavor of science. And now what we need to do is to step back and say, there are all these other flavors of science and we need to acknowledge them. We need to have seats at the table so we can hear the different perspectives and learn. And I passionately believe only when we can do that, then we have a chance of solving the most important crisis of our lifetimes. And I mean, perfect example, COVID. But there's so many examples, right? Um, global climate change and the space economy and all of this happening so super fast is all a part of that. We, we need to widen the lens and we need a plan because it's already in motion. So um, the idea of indigenous astronomy has been gaining, it's like a revitalization. It's, it's so old, it's new. And it's actually rooted also in indigenous knowledge systems that came out of post-apartheid South Africa. So this idea of indigenous knowledge and recognizing that in South Africa, they did that at the federal level, at the federal level. Okay, so this is all to say, back to your question, that more and more there are an increasing number of resources that have been created by First Nations people. So example, Wilfred Buck. He's a, in a new elder, a scholar, a science communicator extraordinaire I work closely with. And he has a lot of really beautiful material. We've produced curriculum, videos, we have workshops. Other folks like the Dene, Nancy Mariboy, David Begay, they literally have been working on this for 30 or 40 years. And the Diné have so much very beautiful and insightful knowledge that will give you their first voice because all of this is meant to support the indigenous voice as taking the lead to share with everyone that indigenous science and indigenous astronomy. So yeah, there's a lot of resources. I can give you links later because colonization was very efficient and we are living in those times but it's not too far gone and we have more need now than ever before so we uh, work hard to create these resources these programs these opportunities to really for me it's about our young people and wellness community wellness because let me just say, I mean, I'm all for STEM and increasing STEM engagement. I really believe in that as well. But at a really basic level, 
the statistics on Native youth suicide are staggering. Here in Minnesota, it's like the Native youth suicide rate is like three times higher than any other group, just off the chart. So what we have is this situation of a great deal of pain, a struggle for just everyday survival, and then just getting overwhelmed with it and giving up. And it's this is one thing that fuels me, of course, inequities in education and in science and the, in the justice system and everything that aligns with Black Lives Matter, but really it's about wellness to me at the basic level. On the topic of worldwide inequities, there's food education where there is that inequality. With the world's population growing, there's a lot of work that has to go into trying to, you know, bridge the gap. So with the work that you've been doing at St. Cloud State University and with Native Skywatchers, all of this work that needs to be done requires resources. Now, from an Indigenous worldview, how can we access these additional resources without negatively impacting the, the earth? Well, so that leads into the idea of the space economy and space mining. I, I feel like there's, there's no turning back. What we have to do is look forward. We have to, first of all, have a plan for the resources that are here on Earth and really reset that relationship with the resources, with the, this wider lens. We talk about something called two-eyed seeing, and this comes from the elders, the Mi'kmaq elders from Nova Scotia. And they basically say that we should learn to see with the best of indigenous knowledge systems and with one eye, and then with the other eye, learn to see with the best of Western science. And then we should learn to see with both eyes for the benefit of all. That's the key piece. Yeah, so it's two-eyed seeing. And... I just want to say that's what I feel we really need to figure out how to do immediately because we do have these things. I have colleagues that work with mining companies right now working on plans, astronomers that are helping my subcontracting with mining companies working on plans to mine asteroids right now, right? Um, we've got space tourism, we've got Elon Musk, he's already set to uh, send people to Mars 2023, right? I mean, it is it is off the charts. I was just listening to an article. They were talking about the space economy, how it's quadrupled in the last 10 years. And in the next 20 years, it's possibly even a trillion-dollar industry. One new thing I didn't even know about, besides like navigation, remote sensing, space real estate, space advertising. I mean, so we started out talking about mining, but this is the idea of Starlink. So Elon Musk is putting up 12,000 satellites. So if he doesn't do it, someone else will, but he just has the most might in the vision to do it now. But what I see is this movement where it's like a land grab. People are just grabbing the real estate, even though they, they might or might not use it, but they could grab it now because the regulation and the global plan is completely lacking. So my feeling from the indigenous perspective as an indigenous scientist, it's already happening. So there's no way of saying 
we just can't mine asteroids or we just can't go into low earth orbit. You know, the water's under the bridge, right? When the horse is already out of the barn. So we have to instead figure out the technology is ahead and what we're seeing in the business economy is ahead. And what's behind is our global plan, our global plan for how to do this in the best way possible so that it's that two-eyed seeing, the benefit for all and not just the small number of people who are already wealthy even though Elon Musk says he's going to create the new network so that it can have low-cost Wi-Fi for everybody, who's to keep him to that lofty goal? Uh, I mean, there's so many things that could go wrong. So I think that what we, if in an ideal world, what we could have right now is a global, like UNESCO, United Nations level plan with some kind of leverage of enforcement, but yet you know, still just, we had the Outer Space Treaty in the 60s and then the, the failed Moon Treaty in the 70s. So like it was there, like the seed was there that we really got to get this together. But it's just, it needs to be reset. It needs to happen immediately because what's happening now, as you know, is that it's happening with or without oversight. And without oversight is really scary because the 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 tenets of capitalism and consumerism will take over. <laughs> and that could lead to very bad things and more inequities in relating to the mining like you talked about. So yeah, I feel that this is really taken off. I talk about this in all my classes, talk about the value systems that are embedded in these different uh, space businesses and the global implications are really important. But the one new thing that I did learn is that there's a new business and it's about space burial. So it's a whole new business where people can send their ashes to space and then you have to pay. Do you heard about that? I was like, wow, I learned something new just the other day. You learn something new every day, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. It was actually kind of one of those cool ideas where you think, well, how much would you actually pay for that? And the other thing, <laughs> the other thing you could just put in the ocean maybe and that would be eventually go to space or... But um, I think the other thing is that the question of inequities and, you know, SpaceX, for example, has this idea of he wants to make reusable um, rockets and uh, so that everybody can afford. It could be like airplanes. But I think really it's going to be a very long time before it's equitable. I mean, even now, you know, not everyone can afford to fly before pre-COVID and everything. So how equitable is the space industry industry going to be able to level the field? I, I have a lot of doubt there that it could maybe it could make things worse, more exaggerate the inequities as opposed to make it a more level playing field. Historically speaking, humans moving out to space is a pretty huge shift uh, on the same level as, say, Western Europe colonizing North America. And while we may not be infringing on other people this time, we are impacting resources. And in the indigenous belief system, impacting the star guts, as you put it, you know, the spiritual beginnings of all that is. We're still seeing the negative impacts of not getting colonization and integration right from initial mistakes made over 500 years ago, manifested in things like high suicide rates amongst indigenous youth. And in Saskatchewan, Canada, we have much of the same struggles that you speak to in the U.S.
I think reconciliation is happening, but there's still so much work to do that I hope it's not another 500 years. How can we ensure that we don't get it all wrong again when the business end is moving so much faster than any multinational organization like the UN that simply just won't be able to adapt quickly enough? Yeah, it's like cybersecurity. We're like 10 steps behind the, <laughs> the bad guys. Um, no, I think that I, what, it, what I keep going back to is the idea of leadership. And this is so huge all the time, but especially when there's crisis and we have crisis. And um, I think what we have is where a government ideally should be the leader, this you know, forward thinking, really have compassion and well, just be able to lead, you know, this should be embedded in these, our system of government. And what we have is more of a breakdown. The way I see like a lot of what happened with Trump and the U.S. elections, people vote for change because they don't like the government, they don't like the waste, they don't like the inefficiency. So a lot of it is really about people just feeling like the system's broken. But at the same time, now more than ever, we need the government. We need leadership. And I feel like that's one of the things that COVID has taught us, that if we have bad leadership, really bad things can happen. And it really does matter. Like the leaders do something. And I think that going forward, it's, it's more like that. Like when we go, when we're already in space, this is a critical time for the leadership to lead and somehow not get stuck in that sinkhole of bureaucracy and fighting and paperwork and like beyond the snail's pace of movement, we need to pick it up because it's already, it's already happening. I think another really important way of thinking about this is with respect to air. Now this, from the indigenous point of view, you know, you have your four elements, your earth, your air, your water, your fire, and it's all connected. And we're a part of that, right? And so what this COVID is about and the space economy as well, air. And I want to say that it might sound so simple, but it is very profound because if you think about the air, it's invisible. And yet our survival depends on it. And COVID is teaching us that, right? That just because it's microscopic and, you know, we can't see it, we think it's not there. That's like the foolish, very narrow, childish way of, of thinking, I believe what I see and only what I see, right? But we are better than that. We know that there are things beyond what our, you know, optical vision or our sense of touch can, can give us that evidence. And so there's these, you know, the air. And the important thing about the air is, one, we need it for survival. can only go, what, two minutes <laughs> without it. But also it connects us all. So it's no longer about the individual. We really are related because we are breathing the same air, right? And now we can look at that whole COVID, the whole COVID storm that we're all going through right now and all the suffering, all the pain that that has with that perspective, the indigenous perspective of we are related by the very fact that we are sharing that air. We are all on, you know, being held by Earth's gravity, including the air, right? And now we go out to space. 
So now this is a whole nother layer of air and space and air on other planets, the microbes, you know, the cyanobacteria haven't been there for 3 billion years making air and, you know, O2. And so what am I getting at? Let's look at, let's look at an example. Let's look at Mars and let's look at the idea of the possibility of microbes on Mars. Chris McKay talks about this, that we've already, there, I think he says there's already like uh, a million and a half microbes from Earth on Mars. Okay, we can get the exact number because many of the early landers, nothing to do with contamination was done, decontaminating. So all the microbes on Earth were already there. So then you think about the idea of now Elon Musk is going to go there and come back, you know, in the next, who knows, maybe five years. And we have to think about what if there are already microbes there? What if they're a whole different genesis? What if they're not? What if they're, you know, who knows what? The, this could be coming back to Earth and ideas of other contaminations, other mixing of our precious air. I mean, do those microbes even have rights? Do we have a right to terraform Mars if we find microbes? I mean, there's a lot of questions that we have not even begun to think about besides the economy and all the trillions of dollars that's driving this. There's a lot of ethical questions, that's what I'm saying. And there's a lot of ethical and life and death consequences. And we see what one virus can do, and that was, you know, right here on Earth. Uh, we just didn't have immunity. We don't have immunity. What if we bring in microbes from other planets or other uh, star systems? I mean, we've only begun. It's incredibly challenging you know, as, as humans to be able to think of every possible scenario and every, how everything impacts everything else. I'm always perplexed by that as, as well. How can we do this sustainably when we don't even know what potential impacts could occur in the future? Now, Dr. Lee, I, I know you're incredibly busy, so uh, if, if people want to find out more about your work, what's, what's the best way for them to find your work and your art online? Oh, uh, yeah, that's, thanks for reminding me. I always forget to <laughs> mention that, but I, uh, I have four different websites. So the, the first one is AnnetteLee.com. That's easy to remember. NativeSkyWatchers.com, you can find me. And then my faculty website has a lot of scholarship, a more emphasis on the publications. Um, we also have a huge international traveling exhibit on indigenous astronomy right there in Ingenium in Ottawa at the National Science Museum. And we're working on that now. So you can find links to that and all of these great projects that are happening on any of those websites. So thanks for taking the time to include an Indigenous perspective in this super important, really important conversation. Thanks for taking the time to join us today, Dr. Lee. Filamia miigwech. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Subscribe and join the conversation by jumping over to our website at peterlucas.ca unearthed or reach out on Twitter at the handle at spaceunearthed. Mm -hmm.